Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Precision medicine is built on a platform of big data, large databases that permit analysis of correlations among environmental and personal factors, treatments, and health outcomes. Databases that once included only paper records now include tissue samples, air and water samples, and more. There is vast potential for significant advances in healthcare from precision medicine. But existing large databases have at least one major flaw. They tend to be drawn almost entirely from European and Asian populations. This limits the reach of the benefits of precision medicine. And since big data analytics are often hidden from the patient and sometimes even the clinician, non-representative data also contributes to mistrust in a healthcare system that has a long history of excluding certain people. The representativeness of data banks and what to do about it is the topic of today's health policy. I'm here with Kate Spector-Baghdadi, Associate Director at the Center for Bioethics and Social Sciences in Medicine at the University of Michigan. She's trained in law and bioethics, and she, with co-authors, published a paper in the December 2021 issue of Health Affairs examining the lack of racial and ethnic diversity in data bank recruitment and enrollment at Michigan Medicine, a major academic medical center. They found failures of representation in part due to recruitment practices and in part due to the disproportionate rate at which Black, Asian, and Hispanic patients declined enrollment when offered relative to non-Hispanic white patients. We'll discuss these findings and more in today's episode. Ms. Spector, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. This is a really interesting and important paper and one that covers a topic most patients probably have no idea is as important to them as it is. Your paper focuses on the demographics of participants in the Michigan Medicine Research Biospecimen and Data Bank. Tell us, just to get started, what is that data bank and why is it so important for clinical medicine? Sure. So our research study focused on data banks that are available to researchers for low-risk or secondary research, we call it, which is when researchers use health information that was primarily collected for other purposes. And in our study, um, we compared two main databases at the University of Michigan, one which is the Research Data Warehouse, and the other we call the Michigan Genomics Initiative, or MGI. The Research Data Warehouse is populated with all of Michigan Medicine's electronic medical record data, or EMR data, and those data are generated when patients come in for care at U of M and sign a general consent that discloses that we might do low-risk secondary research with their data and biospecimens. MGI, on the other hand, is populated with patients that we specifically recruit to enroll in research. They've already signed a clinical consent to be patients, but then they sign an additional research consent to be part of MGI. And with both kinds of these data sets, um, we can do critical life-saving research. Um, we're able to compare health behaviors with pre-existing comorbidities, with health outcomes, and really do some major advances in the way we treat patients. For example, many advances in COVID care have actually been derived from studying what has worked or not with COVID patients over the past several years. And the advantage of MGI over our standard EMR data is that we also take patient biospecimens and we can derive their genetic information. So we can incorporate genetic variation in that analysis. 
So just to step back for those who haven't focused on these topics, we tend to think of clinical trials as the way we make advances. We have a new drug or procedure, and we randomize the population, and we try it out, and we see if it works. This is a completely different approach. This is taking large data sets and looking for patterns after the fact to see whether or not something is correlated with something else, which can then lead us in directions to modify how we approach uh, care and treatment. It's not the same as a clinical trial, and it doesn't give you the same certainty or near certainty associated with what those trials can do, but it can find patterns that you would never be able to find any other way. Exactly. And it helps us focus not just on drugs or devices that are being applied, but also clinical practice. What is the best way to do that? For example, um, when we found out that it was best to lie seriously ill COVID patients prone or upside down, that was by focusing on clinical practice. We're not studying a specific drug. We're studying a positioning and figuring out who does better. That's a great example. And uh, so why is it important that we have diversity in our databank specimens? And when we use the term diversity, what kinds of diversity are important? Yeah, that's a great question because diversity is always in relation to something else, right? Something isn't just diverse or not diverse. And so the kinds of diversity we were focusing on in this study that I think is so important is demographic diversity, including specifically sex, age, socioeconomic status, status, ancestry, race, and ethnicity. And the reason that demographic diversity is so important is that we need to ensure that our research findings, so our study findings are generalizable, meaning that they will act in the way we predict that they will act across different populations. So going back to just the very common example of COVID-19, because so many people understand how that works. Um, if I'm trying to derive a model that will predict who's most likely to develop severe complications from COVID, but I do so only using individuals from an adult population greater than 65, right? And so if I test my model, it has really high accuracy and precision. Um, but then I go out and I apply it to everybody, not just people who are 65 and above. Um, and I find that people who are under the age of 65 are getting much less severe complications. Without including a diverse age cohort in our study, we don't we don't won't know that it won't work in advance, that there's no validation in a younger population. And at the very least, we need to make sure that we're validating our models on populations that are diverse as the patient populations to whom we aspire to apply them. Okay, so that's a clear statement of the importance of diversity. What do we know about whose samples are currently found in the major data banks that are used to uh, lead to these kinds of clinical advances. And I think that that's going back to your opening statement about our findings in Michigan medicine specifically, because I want to reassure you and the University of Michigan too, that this problem is not unique to us. It's extraordinarily widespread and it is across genetic and other kinds of databases in the U.S. and across the world. For example, of data used in genome-wide association studies worldwide, 81% are derived from participants of European descent, just like you made that point earlier. And some of the NHGRI databases, which are... Which That's is the uh, National Human Genome. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, 
78% of their individuals are of European ancestry and nine are of East Asian. And non-European or Asian participants account for less than 4% of those data. So this is a pervasive and important issue. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed out that uh, the fact that the study looks at the experience at Michigan Medicine doesn't in any way suggest that things are worse. It's just that was the data available to you to do the kind of analysis you did. And we have certainly published papers that affirm the point that you've already made, which is the uh, lack of representation in existing databases. And since we spoke over each other when we uh, said the National Human Genome Research Institute, we should note if it's not obvious that that's part of the NIH. So this is a, you know, the core federal center focused on these topics is very aware of this uh, challenge. So given the concerns about lack of representation, let's turn to your study. You looked at the rates at which people with various demographic characteristics participated in the Michigan Medicine Data Bank. Just give me the top-level findings at two data points that you focused on being uh, asked to participate and choosing to participate if you're asked. Sure. So we know that data banks lose demographic diversity at several time points, one of which is access to clinical care to begin with. But our study looked at the other two, which is differences in recruitment strategies and who those recruitment strategies capture in terms of patient population, as well as differences in consent rates. So when we looked at recruitment specifically, we found that patients who were eligible to enroll in our MGI initiative database were more likely to be older, white, male, and live in a socially economically advantaged neighborhood in comparison to our general Michigan medicine patient population. And this is largely because recruitment was designed to recruit from the perioperative setting, from patients who are sitting there waiting for surgery. And we realized that the patients that were sitting there waiting for surgery were likely to be older white men. And there were a lot of convenience for the patient reasons that we designed it in that way, but that was an unintended consequence. Second, when we looked at consent, we found that when asked, patients who agreed to enroll in MGI were younger and less likely to be Black or African American, Asian, or Hispanic than the patients who did not. So we lost demographic diversity at two time points, both recruitment and consent. And somewhat surprisingly, both almost had an equal impact on the lack of diversity in the database overall. So what you're describing is a sort of funnel. We take the population as a whole and we'd like the data bank to represent it, but at various steps along the way, you lose certain people. And what you're saying is that the loss isn't random and that uh, the biases in those losses are uh, leading to the ultimate sample not being uh, representative, even though uh, we would like it to be. I, I want to dig deeper into what we know about each of those phases of loss. We'll do that after we take a short break. Are you a healthcare professional working in the Medicare Advantage space? Rise National is the event for you. Rise National will bring over 1,600 attendees safely together in Nashville this March 
for face-to-face networking, benchmarking, regulatory updates, digital healthcare delivery trends, and technology advancements. Visit www.risenational.com and use code JOIN100 to save $100 on registration today. Racism is a fundamental cause of health disparities for racial and ethnic minority groups. And yet racism, especially structural racism, remains understudied in healthcare research. The February issue of Health Affairs focuses on racism and health and will cover topics such as how racism damages health, measuring the health impacts of structural racism, and racial bias in digital health. Check the show notes to order your copy today. And we're back. I'm speaking with Kate Spector about enrollment of the population in a biospecimen and data bank. Just before the break, we were looking at the various places at which diversity is lost uh, due to the recruitment uh, practices. So let's take the two parts that your study focused on. You already indicated that uh, the first stage of recruitment is people waiting for surgery. If you were to try to address the lack of diversity or the the loss of diversity, um, how might you think differently about the recruitment phase for the research biospecimen and data bank? So in retrospect, it's somewhat unsurprising that the patients sitting in surgery are different than our general patient population. Past research has found disparities in access to surgical care, as an example. So some of the ways that Michigan Medicine has already implemented to try to improve that is we're allowing patients to consent and enroll from home or over the phone so they don't need to be present in the hospital, which is good for a lot of reasons during a pandemic. They can go to neighborhood laboratories to get their blood drawn and send in a mail-in spit kit. And in addition, um, we're compensating participants for the additional time that they have to spend undergoing these activities. Whereas before, patients were giving blood anyway and just spent a few moments talking to us. But so those are some of the changes that we've already implemented at Michigan Medicine to improve recruitment. So it's really striking that that was an equal contributor to the other. But let's turn to the other, which is people declining to participate, even if they're eligible and asked. What do we know about the reasons that Black patients or Hispanic patients might decline to participate in the data bank? And what steps has Michigan Medicine taken to try to respond to these concerns? So there are lots of potential reasons that Black and African American or Hispanic patients might might decline to participate in research, centering around the fact that medicine and researchers in general have not acted in trustworthy ways in the past and even now. I think a major contribution of our study is our finding that the ways patients were recruited had almost as much of an impact on diversity than who actually consented when asked. So one of the major reasons in our study that Black and Hispanic and Asian patients weren't enrolling in MGI is because they weren't asked in the first place, which is somewhat different than sort of having trust to consent. And so I would argue that a major component of building trust across diverse communities is to not design research enrollment in ways that exclude certain people in the first place. And so that is 
what Michigan Medicine has focused on specifically in the MGI initiative. Certainly, we have other groups um, that focus on community engagement and community building. But one thing that we have a lot of control over is how we design recruitment in ways that don't already exclude patients. Because as you pointed out, we're losing diversity at two time points. And unfortunately, that loss of diversity both acted in the same direction, right? The people we were less likely to ask were also less likely to consent. So we really need to think about this from the ground up. Now, we're a policy journal, and you've described the practices of an institution, Michigan Medicine. I wonder, as you think about what you found in this study, whether there are public policies related to data or informed consent or anything else like that, that you think could be modified that would improve uh, participation representation in the data bank? Sure. I have lots of thoughts. So I'm the former associate director of President Obama's Bioethics Commission. So I've been thinking of this for a long time. Um, And I know that the Federal Department of Health and Human Services has been trying to build a database to address this kind of problem since the Obama administration. It's now called All of Us. One of the challenges of all of us is that the number of participants currently is much lower than other data banks. And when you're doing different kinds of research studies, having access to data from as many people as possible matters because you want as many patients as possible who look like each other so that you can generalize findings to them. Um, But all of us does offer some much needed diversity in terms of age, race, and ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. So that's great. And we should continue to support that work. Um, The National Institutes of Health are also trying hard to encourage funded investigators to enroll a diverse cohort of participants by mandating enrollment reports. But one of the challenges is that a lot of researchers don't actually know how to design recruitment and consent protocols in a way that increases demographic diversity. So that's a really promising area for future research, and lots of people are looking in that space, and I hope um, that those improvements continue. And the last point I'll make in terms of the legislative branch is that general health data privacy protections like they have in Europe or in California would limit the ability of private industry to collect and sell people's health information. And the reason that it's problematic that private industry is able to do that so freely is because their data sets are often even more biased than the ones we derive from patient populations because people have to purchase a device or an app or engage in this wellness program to begin with. Um, So those are three suggestions that I'd make that we should keep working on or improve in the future to try to help this from a policy perspective. Well, I'm glad you've given that some thought because those are all really intriguing ideas. And it reminds me that I've heard about emphasis on making sure that clinical trials are more representative, but I haven't heard the same emphasis when it comes to these databases. And so maybe we can just uh, broaden our thinking uh, to capture both of those. I want to turn to what I found a really interesting part of the paper, which is the ethical trade-off that you mention. And it's the trade-off between respect for individual autonomy and justice in research. Uh, I'm sure you can do a better job than I can. So why don't you explain that trade-off and how it's relevant to this study? Sure. So if I'm a researcher at the University of Michigan and I want to choose a data set for my work, and I can choose between the research data warehouse where all of our EMR data are stored or MGI, 
where patients give specific consent. Um, on the one hand, our EMR data are much more diverse in terms of demographics. However, patients that are represented in that data bank just sign an average clinical consent, which discloses some basic information um, about HIPAA and about use of biospecimens, but isn't a thorough research consent. And also, if you want healthcare at the University of Michigan, you have to sign a clinical consent form. And this is true, again, across hospitals. We're just using the University of Michigan as an example. Um, but if I look at the MGI database, I know that the patients represented in there have signed this additional consent, yet overall lack diversity. So an oversimplification could be that I'm comparing autonomy of respecting consent of individuals against justice implications of trying to do generalizable research. That's a big problem that's hard to solve, but we know that the answer is somewhere in between because building a just system is one that doesn't put attention between respecting individuals and respecting communities in the first place, which is why solutions to this problem need to be built in at the ground up. Yeah, so what it makes me think of is we have the trade-off, but the best way out of that trade-off is to solve as well as we can the problem of representation. If we had equitable participation, then we could honor individual autonomy while we could have uh, more just research. But uh, if we don't solve the representation problem in the data bank, then we are forced to pick somewhere on this ethical continuum and nowhere feels quite right. I agree. And at there are some that would argue that given the low risk of secondary research, compromising autonomy is more appropriate than compromising justice. But due to the fact that we found in our research that our Black and African American, Hispanic, and Asian patients declined enrollment at twice the rate in some cases as our white patients, that makes me uncomfortable because that means that we're compromising the autonomy interests of our historically marginalized populations at a higher rate than our white population. And that doesn't seem right at all. Well, as we bring our conversation to a close, I want to ask you something specific about this study. You had a really interesting interdisciplinary team, and I think it's part of the richness of the work. Can you say a little more about what it took to build that team, where you drew from, and why that was important to this project? Sure. So yes, we ended up with a hugely diverse and interdisciplinary team. And that was derived a bit from snowball sampling, from going through the work and realizing that we needed more and more um, colleagues with diverse perspectives. So it started actually with uh, Jenna Weens, the senior author, and Nicholson Price, who is a professor at our law school, sort of talking about this basic problem that needed both computer science innovation and analysis, as well as had major legal implications. I got brought on as then as a bioethicist. We brought on Anna Brackett as a political scientist. We brought in Melissa Creary as a public health specialist who focuses specifically on issues of equity and inclusion. Um, and so we had a lot of representation. And then, of course, we had colleagues who engaged with the MGI database. So we just had a big group of people. And it was amazing in that it was truly 
a collaborative process in that I couldn't have produced this paper without the computer science team, without the public health team, and they couldn't have produced it without me. So I think it really goes to show you what can happen when you're willing to work across disciplines and the amazing work that we can actually implement, not just finding out problems, but fixing it and moving towards solutions. Well, Ms. Spector, it's been great uh, talking with you, reading your paper, and having a chance to get a little more insight about the thinking uh, behind it. Uh, thank you so much for being my guest on A Health Policy. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>